Well, hello. Merry Christmas to you. Good to have you at Crossroads Church today. Uh, man, so glad to see you. What a powerful way to open up our services together, to sing about the joy that we have uh, during this season, this third week of Advent as we gather together to worship uh, the one who has come and saved us. And so today is really all about lifting the name of Jesus. We're all about Jesus here at Crossroads Church and excited for this season that we are currently in. If you are brand new with us, I want to say welcome to you, whether you're uh, here at Thornton, at Fort Lupton, online, uh, joining us wherever you may be. If you're new, man, I'm so grateful that you're here. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And uh, if you are new today, um, we have a text line that you're going to see a couple of times today. The number is 720-513-1933. And you can use this throughout the course of your day or even this week uh, in the coming weeks ahead. But if you're new today and you want to get like a virtual hand raise to say, hey, you're, we're here, uh, you can just simply text the, uh, the word new uh, to that number. Or if you have some questions about what Crossroads is about or the way that you can get involved, if you text new, uh, we'll get in contact with you through that text line and walk you through what it looks like to be a part of Crossroads. On top of that, today, uh, we have our next experience. And so right after this service at 11 o'clock, um, our next experience begins. And that's where we serve some lunch and where you can really find out and learn about what Crossroads is all about and what it looks like to be a part of this church. And so if you're interested in that, uh, no reservations needed today. You can just shoot right out these doors, up the stairs, take a right into room 200 and and uh, we'd be glad to host you, and you can find out all the things that are going on here at Crossroads uh, through Next, all right? So with that said, uh, Christmas season is upon us. How many of you are ready? Kind of show of hands. Anybody ready in here? All right. The, the group is growing every week. Good, good. Well, a uh, couple, uh, well, more than a couple, several years ago, when my middle son, Cademan, was uh, in kindergarten, uh, he had this habit, and actually he still has this habit, of waking up, even though he's 12 now, waking up very early in the morning. When he was in kindergarten, uh, through the winter, he'd wake up early in the morning, and the first thing that he would do every morning is he would go to the window, and he would look uh, out the window to see if it had snowed, to see what the weather would be like. See, for Cademan, he loved the winter, he loved snow, because snow meant Christmas in his mind as a kindergartner. And so one October, kind of mid-October, we got one of those, like, you know, early snows, like sometimes where we get here in Colorado, and I heard Cademan kind of, you know, moving around in his bed and he jumped up out of his bed and I could hear him like fiddling with the blinds and he uh, looks outside and the next words that I hear is, it's Christmas, everybody up! And he comes tearing through the hallway, down the stairs, into the living room only to find no stockings, no tree, no presents. And the next thing I heard was this, is why is there no Christmas? There's snow outside, right? Like... Like undoubtedly, uh, for most of us who are adults, that we can remember the agonizing wait as children for Christmas, can't we? Like it just seemed like the days just went on and on and on as we waited for Christmas to come. It was just this agonizing time of the year as the anticipation just built inside us for the excitement of Christmas Day. And truth be told, we are in the midst of that agonizing wait right now, aren't we? We are 14 days away from Christmas, in case you are wondering how far away we are, and we're just just, you know, close enough for we can start to touch it and see it, but far enough that our kids aren't out of school yet, right? And there's countdowns happening in my, in my kids all over the place. Like, we're counting down school. We're counting down to Christmas parties. We're counting down to Christmas. Like, there's countdowns are on. The anticipation is on. And what we've decided to do as a church during this season of waiting, we call this Advent, uh, during this season of waiting is to take some time to prepare our hearts, to, to get ready our hearts for the, the specialness of Christmas. And the way that we're doing that 
is actually walking the road back in history's past to the very first Christmas, to see the anticipation of that day and, and what made that first Christmas so special, to remember why we celebrate, why for many of us this season brings such joy into our, into our lives. See, the reality is, is that feeling that we experienced as children of, of waiting for Christmas to come is what actually sets the stage for the very first Christmas. You may be aware of this, or maybe you're, you're not very aware of this, but from the very beginning, from the very beginning, for many, many generations, there was always this group of people in Israel that, that waited every single day, not for the arrival of Santa Claus, but for the arrival of the Messiah. In every single generation, there was this group of people that lived their lives and, and they lived their lives in obedience to God and they lived with this expectancy that during their lifetime, that, that the Messiah, that God would actually come and, and visit, that he would arrive on this earth. But unlike the certainty of our Christmas, their wait must have seemed like forever that they would get up and they would pray and they would pray and they would pray and they'd live their life as, as faithfully as they could. And yet 99.9% .9 of those who were waiting on the Messiah died before they ever saw the promise fulfilled. That throughout Jewish history and Jewish culture that many of the Hebrew people kind of peeled away you know, they, they lost the hope that a Messiah would ever come. They started to think of the stories of the Messiah as mythology or fairy tales. I mean, who in their right mind would order their entire lives around a prophetic message from a prophet given some thousand years past? I mean, who would do that? And yet, in every generation, there was this small group of people who believed that a child would be born, a son would be given, and his name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That these days in Israel were the days of great expectation. And the moment had finally arrived, the Messiah was coming, just not in the way that most people thought it would. See, the beginnings of the Christmas story begin for us in Luke chapter 1 with Zechariah. And if you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll be there in a minute. But our Christmas story begins with Zechariah and this encounter that he has with this angelic being named Gabriel. This Gabriel shows up to this old-time priest, this old-timer, and he gives him this unbelievable message. He says that I come from God, and, and God has heard your prayers, and Zechariah, in your old age, Elizabeth, in your old age, after a lifetime of barrenness, you are going to have a baby boy. That with your son being born into this world, his name would be John, and with John's arrival, with John's birth, history will be in motion. God will have heard the people's prayers. God can be trusted. God fulfills his promises. Like God is on the way. The Messiah is going to arrive. Christmas is on, and anticipation begins to, begins to build. God has not forgotten his people. And at that moment, Zechariah, when he was serving in the temple, should have gone running out of the temple, Forrest Gump style, running all the way 17 miles to Hebron to tell his wife what was going on. That's what should have happened. Instead, the old timer, he couldn't help himself. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 1, verse 18. He's standing before the angel Gabriel and Zechariah in this moment, as all of this stuff is being shared with him and the greatness of who his son is going to be, this fulfillment of a prophecy given 400 years earlier, he looks at the angel in disbelief and he asks this question, how shall I know this? <laughs> like, like how, 
how will I know that this is actually true? And I kind of chuckle when I think of this because, you know, I've had some bad pizza in my life and had some like weird dreams at night, but this dude's standing in front of an angel, right? And he's having this angelic moment with this, with this being called Gabriel, and he looks and he goes, yeah, I'm not sure. Why don't you share a little bit more? And so the angel replies to him, verse 19, and he answers him, I am Gabriel. No, I think that's maybe how it went, but he said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you, like not anybody else, but to you. That I'm speaking to you, not the guys waiting outside for you, wondering where you're doing and what you're doing, like, like not other people in Israel, that I've come to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I mean, here's Gabriel, and I look at it, and, and Gabriel answers him. He's like, man, how many times have you heard of someone talking to an angel? He's like, I was just hanging out with the big guy, you know God? And God said, hey, go visit Zechariah. Tell him that I heard his prayers, that he's going to be given a son, and that this son is going to be divinely appointed to be the fulfillment of a prophecy given 400 years ago. Verse 20. And behold, you will not be silent and unable to speak into the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which had been fulfilled in their time. Gabriel looks at Zechariah and he says, <laughs> enough with you, you're just gonna be quiet. You're gonna be silent for the next nine months and you're just gonna take in, in your silence, in your quietness, you're just gonna marvel at God, that you're gonna marvel at the mercies and the miracle of God as you watch him fill your wife's barren womb with a child's. Verse 23, and when his time of service ended, this is his time in Jerusalem, spending a week there serving the temple. When that time had ended, he did what he should have done at the beginning. He went home silently. And after these days, I love this, how this part of the story ends. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth, she conceived, just like the angel said that she would. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me. In other words, I am blessed. God has given me the answer to my prayers, and he has taken away the reproach among the people. Like, I just love this because all of us, we can just see this, can't we? We can see Elizabeth in her old age, sitting in a rocking chair, walking back and forth, her hands on her belly, smiling, realizing that her husband can't say anything for nine months. Right? Every argument won. Heaven on earth for Elizabeth, right? Like, that's where it's going, that she gets to be the mama of the prophet, the messenger, the herald, the proclaimer of the great Messiah who is to come, who was promised all of those years ago. We flash forward from that moment, four months into the future, the big day has finally arrived, and the little baby is now born. And as was the custom of the Jew in verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Now, in Jewish history, in Jewish culture, in Jewish tradition, the eighth day is a big day for a Jewish boy. 
On the eighth day, there was two celebrations um, that happened or, uh, yeah, celebrations that would happen. The first celebration or ceremony that would happen was that of circumcision. That circumcision was the sign of the Hebrew people. That it was a sign that went all the way back to the days of Abraham. You can read about it in Genesis about 12 through 20. You can hear about the promise that God makes, this covenant that God makes to the people of Israel, to Abraham's descendants, where he basically says that I'm going to be your God and that you're going to be my people. And the sign of this covenant is going to be circumcision, that there's going to be this physical mark on the male body that says that you belong to me. That's what circumcision was all about. And so the way that the ceremony would begin is that this priest would come in and he would take the baby boy from the father. Now, in this, Zechariah would typically, because he was a priest, be the one who would have the opportunity to, to lead this ceremony for his own son. It would have been an incredible honor, but, you know, Zechariah's mute, so he can't. So another priest gets the honor. And so the priest takes his hands to begin the ceremony, and he raises it over the family, and he begins to give the blessings out of Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you, and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine among you and be gracious to you. And may Lord, the Lord lift up his countenance, that is his very smile upon you today. And may that bring you shalom. May that bring you ultimate peace. After sharing that blessing, the father Zechariah, like he had done so many times for other families, would, would hand the baby to the priest. And the priest would set the baby down on the kitchen table and he would take his curved handled flint knife and he would perform the circumcision on the boy. And after it was done, wine would be poured and, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they would, they would toast to God's mercy and a celebration would erupt, not only in their house, but throughout the entire village because this is another life that God had given, had given to, to this town. And after all of the celebration, after all of the toasting had taken, what would happen next is that they would, they would have called his name Zachariah after his father. That after the toast, the naming ceremony commenced. And the baby would be held up by the priest, kind of like Lion King style, you know. He'd hold, the, hold him up and he would say, your name shall be Zachariah after, after your father, Zachariah. Let your father rejoice. And as he's saying that prayer, verse 60, but the mother, that being Elizabeth, answered, and she was like, uh, no, no, his name's not going to be Zachariah. He shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are, are called by this name. See, traditionally in, in Jewish culture, that little boys were named after their dads, and if not after their dads, then some great male in the family. And here, you know, in Jewish culture, like, I can't even explain to you or have you feel how out of, like, like Elizabeth is totally out of her lane as a woman in this culture right now. Like, this is, this is, like, socially awkward. Like, she's interrupting this priest's prayer. She's interrupting this ceremony for the naming of her child. Like, like, everything is just, like, the tension is just rising in this moment. And Elizabeth speaks up and goes, no, 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 no. His name's not going to be after his dad. We're actually going to name him John. And they all look at him and go, John? Who's John? Like, like... Who's that guy? We, we, don't know, we don't know who that guy is. And then they all look at Zechariah, like, because Elizabeth's making this ludicrous suggestion. And they look, at, they look at Zechariah, and it says that they made signs to his father inquiring what he, uh, what, what he wanted him to be called. And so I kind of imagine, like, you know, the priest is holding the baby, and he puts it in front of Zechariah's face like he's blind instead of mute. And he's like, what do you want to call him? And Zechariah looks at the priests, and he asks for some writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. They all wondered because they knew 
that Zechariah had lived more years than he had left. They all wondered, because why wouldn't he want his name passed on for generations into the future? They all wondered why he was forsaking the tradition of the Jews that he had led so many families in, in this town. Like, like, why would he forsake their tradition? And the answer is because Zechariah knew that his baby boy's job was not to carry on his name, but actually the name and the message of another. Verse 64, and immediately in this moment, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and, and he spoke blessing God. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to prophesy saying these things, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That these were the great days of great expectation. And the prophetic blessing, the first utterances that, that Zechariah is able to have in nine months, this prophetic blessing that he gives is less about his son John and instead speaks right to the hearts, the longing of the people. It's less about his son, John, and it's more about the one that John's going to proclaim. See, with the birth of John, history is now in motion. And the people of Israel, that they're going to come eye to eye, face to face with God as the Messiah. That he's coming into this, to this world to save them. That this Messiah is coming, or the way that Zechariah says it in his song, the horn of salvation. See, the horn of salvation is one of the most beautiful images that we have in all of the scriptures concerning the Messiah. And Zechariah holds it up for those at that first Christmas to see and for those of us to see at every Christmas thereafter. With John's birth, with John's birth, history is, is now in motion. And Zechariah prophetically calls the Messiah, the one still forming in Mary's womb, the one who will be called Jesus, the horn of salvation. Now, because of like our modern minds, when we think of horn, almost immediately we go to a musical instrument, right? The thing that you blow into and it makes noise out on the other side. That's not the image here, all right? That's not what's going on here. This is the only place in all of the New Testament where the word horn is used in this way. And so we have to go back to the Old Testament, undoubtedly where Zechariah got this imagery in order to figure out what's going on, in order to understand the beautiful imagery that Zechariah wants us to see in his song. See, all the way back in Psalm 92, King David, he writes these words. He says, for behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. 
In uh, Micah 4.13, God, speaking to Jerusalem, says this, Arise and thresh, O O Zion, for I will make a horn, your horn iron, and your hoofs bronze. That these verses are not talking about some musical instrument. They're talking about an instrument of war. They're talking about an ox's horn and the way that it was used in battle, the way that it was used in ancient Near East to signify strength and victory. Now, my family is mostly from Kentucky, and we have a family farm in Kentucky, and there's cattle everywhere on this, on this farm. And one day, I was, while I was in seminary, I was back at the family farm, and I was preaching at a church kind of nearby, and I was preaching in the morning, Sunday morning, and then, you know, they were good Southern Baptists, so they had evening services as well. So I was preaching in the morning and at night, and so in the afternoon, I was just kind of chilling, and I was at the farmhouse, and I was watching uh, NFL football with my cousin sitting there kind of in the front room, and as we were watching football, out of kind of the corner of my eye, I saw what seemed like a bull run through the front yard of the farmhouse. Now, even on the farm in Kentucky, this is unusual. And so I sat up on the couch and I looked outside and then I looked over at my cousin. I said, did you see that? He goes, see what? I said, I think I just saw one of the young bulls run through the yard. And he said, you did? And I said, yeah. Then sure enough, here comes my dad, his dad and their brother running across in chase of this bull. So we jumped off the couches and we joined in. And we joined in and eventually we got this young bull like, you know, cornered. And on one side was a barn. On the other side was this fence that was advertised as unbreakable. Now, the reason that I know that is not only because I helped put the fence in, but because I sold fence during seminary, and the people who built the fence said, this fence is unbreakable fence. And then there was the five of us kind of surrounding the bull. Now, honestly, I don't know what we thought we were going to do. All right? But there I am looking eye to eye with this bull. You know, its neck was as big as a barrel. It was 800 pounds of testosterone and anger, and its horns were dialed in right onto me. And at that moment, my uncle yelled, don't let it go through the barn. Not concerned about his nephew at all, right? And at that moment, the bull turned to 180, hit that fence, unbreakable fence once, turned its horns, backed up again, and went right through that fence, ran as far as you could see until it entered into the hollers. I share that story with you. Because it is not hard for me to imagine how the horn of a wild ox became for the ancient Near East people a weapon of war, a sign of tremendous strength, and a means of victory in conflicts. In verse 70, Zechariah says that the coming of the horn of salvation was prophesied long ago. And what he's talking about here is Psalm 132, where God is speaking, and he's speaking concerning Jerusalem, and he says this, There I will make a horn to sprout for David, that I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. What he's saying is, is that when a, when a young ox begins to sprout horn on its head, that eventually that horn goes into the skull, solidifies with the skull, and it becomes as tough as iron. And at that point, the animal's enemies are warned, right? That all of the enemies now have to fear this ox. Now in the Old Testament, we see time and time again that God is the one who is fighting for Israel. That God is the one who's, who's, who's fighting for, for Israel. He's the one who's, who's strong and he's the one who gets the victory over the enemies for his people. That he is the horn. He's the horn. So it's no surprise to us 
that the only two times in the Old Testament where the phrase horn of salvation shows up is in 2 Samuel and in Psalm 18, and it's both the same song recorded us from us from David, where David writes these words. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The picture that David is painting for us is that God has a shield in his hand defending him and a horn of salvation, the horn in his hand as a means of weapon to lay waste to the enemy. That he is both his defender and mounting the offensive when it comes to the enemy. Which brings us all the way back to Luke chapter 1 and Zechariah's song and the imagery that he wants us to see. That the Messiah is the horn of salvation because he is the deadly weapon and the power which according to verse 71, God uses to save his people from his enemies. That Zechariah undoubtedly meant that one day that the Messiah would come and on that day that he would literally crush the enemies of the people and that he would bring his people behind his walls and that he would provide peace for them. That's the picture. That's the image. And as we prepare for Christmas, it is so important for us not to make the same mistake that the Hebrews made when they saw this picture. See, for them, when they thought about the Messiah, when they thought about Jesus coming as the Messiah, what immediately went into their mind is that Jesus was coming to crush their enemies, which for them meant people, that he was going to be this political savior that would, that would crush Rome, that he would defeat Caesar, that he would destroy the empire. They missed the imagery. They missed it. Listen, the Bible makes so clear to us that flesh and blood are not our enemies. Ephesians chapter 6 says your enemies are not flesh and blood, that your enemies are not other humans. They are not the enemy, that they are they're the captives. See, for so many of us who follow Jesus, I see in our actions that we are treating captives like, like enemies, like they're the enemies. We see people who hold opposing views, who live different lives, who don't agree with us, and we look at them, we go, hey, there's the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're the captives. They're the captives. And Jesus, the horn of salvation, did not come to crush the captives. He's not fighting against them. He's fighting for them. That the horn of salvation comes so that humanity can experience freedom. See, from the scriptures, we're told that every single one of us has sinned. And because of our sin, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And because we've fallen short of the glory of God, those wages of sins is ultimately death. That you and me, every single one of us, that we have a terminal disease that is killing us. It's called sin. And not only is this sin killing us, but we have this, this great enemy. And in the scriptures, we're told this enemy's name, that his name is the devil or Satan. And that he prowls around like a roaring lion ready to devour you. He's ready to pounce on you and kill you. So according to the Bible, there's this deadly disease that all of us have that we're all inflicted with, and there's this powerful enemy, and every one of us are going to die from this disease and be devoured by this enemy. But according to Zechariah's song, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us from the house of David.
that as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. See, the picture this Christmas for you is Jesus standing with a shield defending you with a horn in his hand, ready to mount an offensive. That Jesus isn't being coddled as some baby here, that Jesus comes as a warrior. The anticipation of Christmas begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When because of sin, death and all of his allies come marching into this world. And as death and all of his allies come marching into this world, God looks at our great enemy and he fires a warning off the bow. Verse, chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, that is hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring, which is evil, and her offspring that there will be hostility between you and, and humanity. And out of her offspring, here's the first prophecy of the Bible, that there's coming from the woman, one, the Messiah, who shall bruise your head. That's the death blow. Sure, you'll wound him, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to kill you. Like, devil, be on alert. The Messiah's coming, and he's not going to be coddled as a baby. He's coming to kill you. He's coming to lay waste to you, wielding the horn of salvation. See, the great joy of Christmas is that God has, has raised up the horn of salvation, that his promise is fulfilled. The king has arrived, the long-awaited expectation of God coming to this earth for us to see face-to-face -face and eye-to-eye -eye is here. The great ox horn of salvation defeated the enemy, and for all of those who call upon the name of the Lord, that they shall be saved. This is the good news of great joy that we celebrate this Christmas season, that we don't have to be afraid of the lion who prowls around ready to devour us. Jesus is standing there defending us. And we do not have to back up in fear because God is mounting an offensive with the horn in his hand to lay waste to the enemies. And that one day we will be in his kingdom, we call that heaven, and we will only know peace. We will only know peace. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we, word, we read verses like this, and God, we are just humbled. We are just humbled that you would come into this world. And Lord, for so many of us during the Christmas season, the image of the Messiah that we have is a cute baby boy sitting in a manger that is coddling and cooing that we can just cuddle with, and it is so cute. And yet the image that you gave Zechariah was the image of what this baby would become. That Jesus would be a warrior who fights our fights. Who would lay waste to the terminal disease that we have, that would lay waste to the enemy that waits to devour us as both our defender and the one mounting the offensive. Father, I pray for us Lord, that this image would reign in our minds this Christmas. Lord, that we would understand that all we need to do is, is get behind you, is to get behind you as you move forward through the lines, knowing that it's not our battles to fight, that we don't have to stand up against the enemy of this world, that we just have to remain faithful to you. 
God, we're so grateful that you sent your son, the Messiah, the horn of salvation to be our savior. Lord, I pray for those who are fighting their own battle. Lord, who are trying to be good enough, who are trying to do everything that they can to earn your favor. Lord, that today that they would realize that there's nothing they can do to do that. That sin is laying waste to their life. And that as they turn and look upon the cross, bringing their sin before the cross, that you forgive them. That you forgive them. And that you give them life. God, we pray that that, that image would fill our souls. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If today you're here and you're wanting to have a conversation of what does it look like to submit your life to the horn of salvation, to the Messiah, to the Savior of this world, Jesus, we'd love to have that conversation with you. You can just shoot a text to our text line. Again, that number is 720-513-1933. Just text the name Jesus, and we'd love to, to continue that with you. Today we gather together as a church. And we celebrate communion. Unlike Zachariah, we get to see the end of the story. We get to see this baby grow up. We get to see him live his perfect life. We see him go to the cross as the warrior, where his hill is bruised as his body is broken and as his blood is poured. And yet the celebration comes three days later when he walks up out of that grave, giving the death blow to Satan into this disease that we call sin. And so today we celebrate the work of Jesus on our behalf by eating the bread and by drinking from the cup. If you need prayer this Advent season, we'd love to pray for you. In-house, you can make your way over to the banner online. You can click the button. I'm gonna invite you to stand and sing as we sing to our King and our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, the horn of our salvation, Jesus.